This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luke Olivier Zmeble. And I'm Yannick Mangan. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? Job titles and also hiring developers. Wow. But before we start, I think we have a lot of follow-up for this week. Uh, yeah, kind of. Uh, so first off, follow-up to last episode's follow-up uh, with iOS 13.4.1. Uh, China's T-Union transit card network is now available via Apple Pay. Uh, Hong Kong's Octopus transit card network has yet to go live, and everybody is looking forward to that. That's exciting. Uh, next up for episode 129 on game streaming and cloud gaming, uh, Stadio Stadia Pro is currently available for free for two months in response to the COVID-19 crisis. So if you want to go try it out, you can go sign up either right now or in a day or two. It's a gradual rollout. And last time I checked the page, I couldn't actually sign up for it. But once that's available, I will go try it out and give my thoughts on a future episode. The only part, when you sent me the link, the only part I was unclear is whether you needed some specific hardware. So if the promotion hasn't gone live in your place, everything on the webpage will look exactly like it did previously, which means it will still look like you have to buy the controller or whatever. But from what I understand, once the actual change is available in your country or on your, the data center you're connected to, uh, there's a different page that lets you just straight up sign up. Ooh, that's okay. That now I'm, could be interested by that. Hmm. Yeah, I am also very interested by that. But uh, anyway, uh, last time I checked, was not available yet. But looking forward to it being available. And maybe, maybe gamers who were negative about Stadia can give a try, and maybe they can change their mind if it's not that terrible. But well, I guess we'll see in a couple weeks. Uh, and then, like the the big part of this follow up is that uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake has... Well, it technically launches tomorrow, and a demo came out a month ago, and both Ducatevi and I have played it, so we're going to give our thoughts on the demo. Yes, we will. So I think we've both played it twice, or did I uh, play it no. twice? No, you played it twice, and then okay. I, I, I wanted to play it twice, and then Diana did not play it twice. Okay, so the Final Fantasy VII Remake demo has three difficulty settings. There's classic, which I'll talk about in a second. There's easy and normal. Uh, and basically the main difference between like the first mode and the other two is that classic basically sets all of your basic attacks on autoplay. The game just attacks for you, dodges for you, defense for you. All you have to do is select your special attacks and magic from a menu. Uh, kind of like an RPG if you set it in auto mode, which is a way a lot of people play uh, Final Fantasy games. Like when I played through Final Fantasy IV, a lot of times on the PSP, I would just like press start and it would go into auto mode. And then when I needed to do something specific, I would put it out of auto and then use my special moves and whatever. And this is basically exactly that. Um, so I played it once on normal. I think I died at the boss. Uh, because there's, there's a mini boss and there's an actual boss in the demo. And then I was like, I don't like this combat system at all. <laughs> so then I switched to the classic mode and then I beat the whole demo. But if, like the caveat with classic mode is it also sets the difficulty of the game to easy. Uh, so you can't, uh, t like to me, it almost feels like it should be a special option in the settings menu, not so much. A difficulty setting but whatever i guess they don't want people to say oh, i beat it on super hard and i auto played the whole thing uh so i don't know uh so what were your thoughts on it so first i did play it in a normal mode um it 
it was refreshing to me uh as a literally a final fantasy noob i do feel you were telling me when after we finished our first playthrough uh and your are too and my uh my only playthrough that most of the recent final fantasy game have the same play style if you use the easy or normal modes 15 is ah, only 15. basically exactly the same combat system as this. Uh, 7 Remake is a little bit faster paced than 15. Okay. So uh, I really enjoy it. I felt it was kind of mixing the typical like adventure slash shooter games that I usually play with some RPG elements. Uh, at first, I did feel that doing those typical like elements where you need to move, shoot or attack and then use your special f- uh, special uh, moves were a bit challenging. Uh getting used to it was I wouldn't say hard but took a bit of time. I think I I struggled during the mini boss, but that's where I learned, oh, you need to do that. And then when you hold the appropriate menu, the time slows down. So you have time, but it doesn't slow down too much. So you need to act fast. Um, and when I got the twist out of it, like at the boss, I was like, oh, no, I really, really enjoy this way of playing. As if you recalled uh, in the episode where we played the original game, I was not in a big fan of uh, the playstyle, and uh, the f- especially like the the cooldown and all of those elements. And whereas I did feel that it, with this game, the fact that you have things to do while you're being attacked and by the, while you're cooling down, which is just your normal attacks, feels uh, keeps you busy during 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 uh, AV battle like the mini bosses and the bosses in the demo yeah it really feels like they looked at what 15 was doing and they looked at what 7 was doing back in the day and they said how can we fuse these two systems together so that they feel closely related enough that people who played 7 but didn't play 15 will kind of be like oh i get it i get how this is supposed to work and then people who play 15 are like this is 15 except there's an extra gauge that goes up over time and that is how i do my special moves instead of like mp and stuff like that uh so it's kind of interesting to see them like adapting it like that sort of for a new generation i think uh, i brought this up to you right after my first playthrough was that uh ff7 had a bunch of features that were meant to adapt the way for people coming from 2d final fantasy games to 3d final fantasy games that like if you were overwhelmed by too many camera movements or you couldn't find your way on this pre-rendered background like there were accessibility features there especially for you in seven uh, that weren't necessarily there in eight and other games afterwards and classic mode really feels like that for me as a traditional final fantasy fan in big quotes because i haven't really played that many final fantasy games but most of the final fantasy games that i've played are not in this style and classic mode is really like the accessibility feature for old people like me that i can just (laughs) get in there and like i can treat it more or less like a turn-based rpg and not have to worry about like to me it really feels like two control systems that were glued together because you've got a menu that you're navigating with a d-pad and you've got your regular action game slashing system i'm like it is very hard for me to juggle these two control methods that i'm really not used to juggling uh, and that's why I kind of hope, wished it was a setting more than anything else, because I could see myself like 
using it basically as training wheels early on in the game and then like shutting it off. And what's interesting is uh, when you're in classic mode, you can override at any moment. You can just start moving the sticks and pressing the attack buttons and it will do it anyway. Hmm. Uh, it's just if you let go of the sticks, the computer takes over. Um, huh. So that will be your training wheel in the end. Yeah, it's just I wish I could put it on like normal or something. Right, Because right. It, with easy, it's literally too easy. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> Did they confirm uh, whether that will be the same thing I, and it was just it wasn't just a demo thing uh i think classic mode is unmodified in seven remake although i haven't really been paying close attention because there are a lot of spoilers going around on the internet right now right 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 uh i i saw some seven spoilers show up well some seven remakes spoilers show up on my youtube recommendations uh yesterday uh so if you're interested in experiencing the added content without having it spoiled i would stay away from youtube in the coming days <laughs> oh yeah i do want to talk a bit about maybe the uh designed and more or less the remake part of it and what we think about it i do have a couple of notes about that yeah uh, the the presentation is fucking amazing um, oh yes the what one of the things i would point out is that this opening section of the game probably has a disproportionate amount of the budget that has gone into it because it is especially what's been shown until now uh until the very last trailer which like now even square enix is fucking putting spoilers in their in their trailers so like <laughs> whatever don't watch the final spo- uh, the final trailer uh, before playing the game well but is uh, it remake spoilers or it's ff7 spoilers new content from remake oh wow okay that's stupid well it's like you want to know that there's something new in the game, but you don't necessarily want to know exactly what it is. Right. So it's like, eh. uh, and I guess they they're trying to catch like the new people who haven't played Seven. So like to them, it doesn't feel like a spoiler because it's just like oh, I'm learning about the story of the game. But like if you've played Seven, you know that's not in the original. So you're like, ah. Eh. Uh, so people are being a little bit vaguer with the definition of spoiler because now it's like literally anything that was not in the original Midgar section is considered a spoiler. Uh, so. <laughs> There you go. Uh, what was I saying? Yeah, so because they've primarily been showing the opening bombing run of uh, the first Mako reactor in marketing materials until now, like this is probably the part of the game that looks the nicest of the entire game. Uh, there's a digital foundry video where they mm-hmm. go into different other uh, areas and other areas are significantly less polished than this one. But oh, yes. they still look very nice, but they're just not this nice uh so the demo makes a very good impression one of the things that i don't know what the deal is if it's a pro ps4 thing or whatever is um when i was first playing through the demo i had a very hard freeze uh during a transition between a cutscene and a real-time rendering segment where everyone in their reviews seemed to have said that they had no pause it was just a seamless transition uh, so I'm not sure if it's because I'm on base PS4 and they were all on PS4 Pro or what the deal is, but I, I had to sit like at this transition for easily close to a minute as Ooh. it transitioned off of the opening cutscene. And I was like, I hope the final game is better than this because the PlayStation just transitions straight and it's like a 4x cd drive and there's no problem there. Uh, so I was kind of disappointed with that. Um, but when you see it in other people's videos and it works perfectly like yeah that's what you want you want to really have it seem completely seamless between pre-rendered content and in-game content and they do an extremely good job when it works yeah with and it it was my experience in the demo i did have a couple of hiccups 
uh, of performance cups, but overall, I didn't have like literally a freeze that like took like a minute or two to resolve itself. The other thing that I have an issue with in the remake demo, and I hope the entire game isn't like this, um, but it's hard to tell, is I felt like the game was constantly slowing you down by interrupting you with dumb cutscenes that, like, yes, your co, uh, your teammates are doing things in the world and they are encouraging you to move to the next thing, to the next checkpoint on <laughs> your, on the map, but can I just fucking run for more than three meters before you cut to a cutscene? And the thing is, if you if you want to skip it, you can't just press start. You have to press start down X, and then you have to wait at a loading screen, even if it would have taken like one second to get to the end of the cutscene. It's insane. Uh, so if you are a cutscene skipper person, uh, which is probably unlikely if you're playing story-based games like this one. Uh, you're going to be frustrated with the experience of skipping cutscenes in this game because there are a lot of them every five seconds. And when you skip them, it takes longer than just walking, watching the cutscene. Though I do remember at the like in the first few, let's say, hour or two of the original game that you do did have a lot of text, like a lot of dialogue between the characters. It's just that I do feel in a 2020 game, if it was just like, just like voiceover while you move people will be like oh it's not polished enough and blah 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 and that's why like when those like transition from real time to cutscene to back to real time uh, are smooth uh it makes for an amazing story-based game see it's weird because like one of the games that became critically acclaimed because they were doing everything in engine all the time and the the conversation was happening within the context of the game was half-life like that was what they revolutionized is like mm. everything happens from the first person perspective of uh, Gordon Freeman and there's no cutscenes. It's just you are playing the cutscenes in, in engine. And you see that a lot in like, um, like in Final Fantasy 13, if you're walking around a city, like there's just going to be like speech bubbles popping out of like, uh, NPCs you walk past or whatever. Uh, or sometimes there are even voice lines. And I was like, nothing you are doing in this opening section or i should clarify very few things that are stopping me from moving in the opening section of the game are important enough to warrant you stopping the action of the game they could just be throwaway voice lines that you have in the subtitles and like seeing them talk off screen i understand your point of view on this but I do feel that I better, I do better understand the relationship between the characters in this remake than with the text. Uh, part to blame too, and I'm not saying it could be fully blamed, but let's not forget that I played it in French too on the iPad. Oh, yeah. So that could be that too. Uh, but I did feel that I was understanding a lot more of the story, uh, with those cut scenes or it, not the stories, but the relationship between the characters. Yes. And like, I couldn't really tell that Jesse was a girl in FF7 when I was playing it on PlayStation because the models are fucking hideous. <laughs> so I was like, oh, she's a girl. Uh, so like, there you go. And it wasn't necessarily obvious from the, from the Japanese she was speaking either. Yeah, um, I think it was obvious from the French translation though. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so so I found myself kind of frustrated by the presentation, but that's mostly because I was interested more in again, the mechanical side of the game and the story side of the game, because I kind of know the story side of the game already. Uh, but for people who have had, like, childhoods defined by FF7, like, 
everything I have seen is that this game is living up to their expectations and then some. Uh, at least for now. Uh, it could be a Zelda effect where like in six months, everybody's like, I remember that Final Fantasy VII? Yeah, that was shit. Ocarina of Time is the best fucking Zelda of all time, boys. Oh my uh, goodness. I mean, you know that's how it is every single fucking time. Uh, except for Breath of the Wild. Um, but yeah. Uh, I did have something I wanted to add, but I forgot. Um, God may- damn it. Maybe we should end this section just by talking whether we will buy the real game or not. Ooh. So one thing I found very funny is when you finish the demo, it doesn't ask you if you want to buy Final Fantasy VII, <laughs> which is what FF15 did. FF15 had a dialogue pop up say, do you want to buy FF15 after it? This is just, nah, which version of FF7 Remake do you want to buy <laughs> or cancel? And I was like, oh my God, they are so confident. Did you press cancel? I did press cancel. Okay, same here. I'm not in a hurry to buy it. Mainly because I have shelves and shelves of PlayStation games that I have not played very much of that I should be playing instead. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's an interesting point. Oh, I remembered what I was going to say about this game. FF7 Remake. It, first of all, it's like the hype around this game has been insane for five years to begin with. But every single trailer of the game, except for the final one that I didn't watch because people told me not to watch it. Every single trailer of this game has made me cry, even before I played FF7. There's just something about the music in this game and everything. Like, it makes me cry every fucking time. And uh, if you haven't seen the trailers for FF7 Remake, go watch all of them except the final one. Uh, or go watch it if you uh, don't care, I guess. No, no, no. I'll make you do it. Put the appropriate link in the show notes. Yes, I will put a bunch of links to the FF7 Remake uh, things. If you're a video gamer who have, who has lived through the heyday of FF7, like you have absorbed enough knowledge via osmosis about this game, all of these trailers will make you cry and make you nostalgic for an era you were maybe never a part of. That, and that, sorry for the interruption, but that last comment, I do feel it. I do feel that the trailers I've seen were like, huh, that is what I missed from the yes. PS2 days. I, like oh PS one days yeah oh yeah but yeah like the original PS one and PS two days when all my friends were playing RPGs and they were like oh my god the latest one is out I was like oh, okay sure I don't care and then I do feel it's uh, not that I miss that time but here's what I didn't experience at that time but what I want to point out is that my experience of crying to every single trailer like I was watching them on the bus and stuff and I had tears coming down my face it was fucking weird uh like. I'm not alone in doing this. Like Final Fantasy VII fans are even worse than I am. <laughs> and that has informed the design of this game, which is something I find very interesting. Uh, there was a story. I watched this uh, fighting game streamer uh, called Maximilian, and he is one of the biggest fighting game streamers. And he's also a big fan of FF7. So he gets invited to all the press events for this. And he does reaction videos to every trailer except the final one, because he was also told not to watch it. And... When he went to go play the demo that we got last month, but he got it last summer because it was the E3 demo, uh, he got to talk to the people who made the game. And they said, when we are working on this game and we are stressed and overworked, we take a break. We go watch reaction videos of the fans when they go watch our trailers. And we remind ourselves that that is the people we are making this game for. And they have an incredible amount of passion for this game. And when I saw that, I was like, this game almost cannot fail if that is how they are working on it. And at least so far, like the 
the professional reviews in quotes uh, have been off the charts for this game. And I think there's a mild hyperbole in there. And I don't know if some of the added content is going to cause some things, but I think this is one of the greats probably uh, for like this decade of gaming. And we got it like the first year of the decade. (laughs) And we have time to play it. Yes, we do. And it's just the Midgar part. So there you go. We're going to have to wait another 10 years for the next part. Yeah. uh, Maybe before I go on whether I'll buy it or not, I wonder how long it will take to get the other sections. Everybody is wondering that, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so uh, like Nick, I also pressed cancel at the end of the demo. I ignored, though I was tempted. Uh, I was tempted to buy it. But in the end, usually uh, I played that, uh, I think, late in January, like a couple of days after it got released, the demo. So uh, it is at this point, maybe a month ago, month and a half ago. Uh, so I was like, ah, I don't have really time. So we'll see in the next few days, in a few weeks. But again, a bit like a Nick, I've uh, this uh, forced time at home uh, has made me go through some of the back catalog I left dangling in the past few years of some of my consoles. I don't want to talk too much about it because that might be topics for future episodes. But Hell yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say worried, but I am... Yeah, I'd say I'm worried that my typical strategy will say, oh, I don't have time now. When I have time, it will be less expensive because it will be on a deal on the PSN store. I don't expect this to happen. Like, every time I say that about uh, Nintendo uh, Switch games, and that's never the case because they're always like $80 a Canadian. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I would expect that maybe I'll buy it in a few next few months. Uh, hopefully it won't have the same effect as what Animal Crossing is doing right now where I, I see a lot of videos on YouTube, on Twitter and I'm like, oh, I want it, I want it, I want it. Uh, Tony fixed that yesterday because he bought it so once he's done playing, uh, I'll be able to play. But uh, So what I will say about that though is technically because of COVID-19 they released, uh, Square Enix released FF7 Remake early in Europe couple days ago i think it was the sixth and there have been almost no videos like i haven't seen nothing on twitter about ff7 remake i have seen aside from the one video with the spoilers on my uh youtube recommendations i have seen nothing on youtube aside from reviews um so at least so far people seem to be very respectful i have no idea how they've done this but on twitch ff7 remake is nowhere Really? It blows my mind. I don't know if the game has, like, capture disabled or, well, maybe on console capture is disabled, but, like, you can still plug a capture card in it. So I have no idea. People are starting streams, like, 24-hour streams of the game tonight uh, because there's going to be midnight streams, of course, and a lot of big streamers are looking forward to it. Uh, But I have seen absolutely nothing of FF7 Remake on Twitch until now. So I don't know if they are just being the takedown police right now or if people are just being civilized and not spoiling things. Uh, But it's really nice to see. Yeah, and I'm sure I'll receive some texts because just before we started recording, uh, one of my friends was sending me a text of his PS4 on the download screen downloading the game, which, oh, I want to. I I didn't look at it because... uh... Oh yeah, I hope you have 100 gigabytes free yeah, on your PS4. What... <laughs> okay, so it says that the yeah it is. Oh, it is a bit below because the first yeah, it's section 83 gigabytes download. The first section is 13 gigs, 13 13.6 gigs, and the, the the like the 
the later section uh, is uh, 18 point and uh, 18 uh, 85.8 gigabytes uh, so when he sent me the screenshot about an hour ago it was saying that you could start playing the game in about an hour so hope I'm guessing he's playing the game now and then there will be seven hours remaining to download the remaining of the game so yeah actually it might be a preload because I think it only goes live on midnight uh, okay, but then. but that that is comparable file size to FF15, which blows my mind because FF15 is a full Final Fantasy game, and this is just the Midgar section of Final <laughs> Fantasy VII. Reminder: you'll yeah. need a full PS4 to play the whole Final Fantasy VII at the end. Right, and you need a lot of time. Something you were telling me this week too is that you'll need at least twenty-five to thirty-five hours. Yeah, of depending time. what difficulty you play on. I've heard classic playthroughs are around twenty-four hours, and if you're playing on normal, it's closer to thirty. Hmm. So yeah, uh, overall, um, I'm quite excited. But uh, maybe I wouldn't be. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised that in six months and a year we'll have another Final Fantasy VII episode where we'll be talking about the remake this time. That could be cool. It would. Okay, and I think we're now uh, at this point, like. 25 minutes in, ready to go to your main topic for tonight? Yes, we are. So, a few months ago, we were looking to hire a senior developer at work to replace a coworker of mine who's going to be moving to Montreal uh, in a couple months to be with his girlfriend. And prior to that, there have been three other hires at the office uh, since I became a member of the company. Uh, but two of those were like recommendations by one of my boss's family members. And he's pretty savvy with development. So he pretty much knew what we were getting. Uh, and another one was our new graphics designer who is really great. And I'm really happy she's here. Uh, but in both cases, I wasn't really involved in the hiring process. However, this time I was asked to sit in on interviews with candidates for a senior developer position. And I have a lot of thoughts to share on the process of hiring developers, both from the perspective of being a developer myself and from the perspective of the interviewer. And my first question I'm going to throw out, uh oh, what does senior developer even mean? As I've sort of hinted at at the start of the show when I talked about like job titles and also hiring developers, like senior developer is ostensibly my job title. I don't fucking know what it means. Um, sometimes when my boss is talking about me on the phone, he calls me a systems architect and that gives a much more specific idea of what it is I do around the office. Whereas senior developer sounds more like a pay grade than an actual job title. Uh, senior developer, it seems to me like a job title that's very relative to the other developers in a given company. For example, a senior developer at Google is going to have a very different role than what a senior developer at a little web development shop is. Um, but if you look at systems architect, the tasks are fundamentally the same from company to company. It's just the scale and the scope of the projects are going to be wildly different. For job seekers, the relative na nature of senior developer isn't much help because what a senior developer is, is only really going to make sense if you already know what the internals of the company look like, and chances are you don't, unless it's a big known tech company. So how would you define senior developer? Um, I do agree with you a bit that a lot of those are like pay grade levels, and uh, what is hard to quantify, but I do feel that where I see a difference is that you do have people that are like, I wouldn't say master, but they have enough experience with a proper tech stack. And also some, 
I wouldn't say some because you might have people that spend like 10 years in the same business and they grow a lot in the same business in their tech stack, but they haven't maybe applied this tech stacks on different problems. Um, so again, that varies. But one way I would see it is somebody that has uh, enough experience and applied different problems, even if it's the same dominant knowledge uh, on that said tech stack that they know uh it's common pitfalls and it's common like successes, if I can call them this way, to be uh, proficient and really useful for business in that said tech stack. On top of that, you could say that like anybody after a senior can be considered like that, but I do say that there's different level in that. Whereas um, a senior might be the first level where a person is comfortable enough to know, like, okay, we, we see, if I use iOS example, we see this view from the designer or we need to build uh, designs uh, themselves. Uh, they should know enough, like, all the iOS components, how they should work, how they should work together in the iOS and all that fun stuff. But then uh, they might not be the best person to build a whole app architecture. They'll be able to build an app, but then... Six months later, three years later, two months, three years later, when we need to redo part of the app to scale to new needs, or we need to add shit on functionality, maybe the UI won't scale because they were kind of the designer, quote unquote, or the architecture of the app is not modular enough to scale for those. Um, so that's again, it's not really sort of like what I start, see as a senior, but I do see seniors developer on that scale uh, of I know the tech stuff quite well and i know enough architecture to go along and have something that can scale over time that's interesting okay uh i talked to my boss more or less about like what he was looking for and the definition i've kind of figured out from talking to him about what he considers to be a senior developer is someone who requires minimal amount of training in order to be an effective developer on projects of all sizes and complexity after being hired. Huh. That's interesting. Yes. I should point out we work at very wildly different companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But different company, different sizes, especially. You work at a place where like, what, 10 employees? We have eight employees. Yeah, yeah. And my team is eight employees. Yes. So the scale is very different. Um, but I think it kind of makes sense because like, when Jason moves out in a couple of months, well, that is like, I don't know how this whole situation has impacted his move. But anyway, uh, putting that aside, when he moves in a couple of months, we're going to have a quantity of work to get done over the summer that is going to need to be developed within that time frame. And we need someone who needs very little to minimal training to actually like be able to get all that work done throughout the summer. Uh, and Maybe some of that is poor planning and there's too much work or whatever. I don't know. Uh, I honestly haven't looked at like what everything we're supposed to do over the summer is because I don't have access to all that information. But that is more or less what he's looking for. Now, I want to go back to that notion of like what senior developer is and what it means and how your personal definition can vary. Because one of the candidates we had come in really illustrates this issue. So this guy had 20 years of experience with software development on Java and .NET, mostly writing web applications for big corporate clients at a firm that's a bit larger than ours, maybe like four or five times larger than ours. And we were asking him like 
questions about what he was doing, what parts of the .NET stack he was mostly using and all of that stuff. And it immediately became clear to us that there was a disconnect with what we were looking for. And the thing is, like, I don't disagree that he's a senior developer, but he's a senior developer from the wrong era. This guy's entire .NET career was frozen in time. He's incredibly knowledgeable in technology that was rendered obsolete 10 years ago and knows practically nothing about what modern web development has been like for the last 15 years. He seems incredibly knowledgeable in what he does know. And I think that makes him a great asset for companies that need him to maintain legacy systems. But where he was coming from was so far removed from what modern web development looks like that to us looking at it from the angle of like how much training do we need to give this guy so that he can become competent at working on our projects it would effectively be the same as taking on a junior developer straight out of college there is so much of a distance in what has changed within the last 15 years like when you're working with people who are using like classic asp and php like structures where everything is built right into the page instead of classes which interact with templates and all of that stuff you're going from so far and like his experience was much less object oriented and much more like procedural and all of that stuff and it's like i don't want to be the one who has to teach you object oriented programming 20 years after you started your career when we can just take someone who knows that already and has much less of a gap between like becoming proficient in our stuff and this has a link with what we talked about in episode 126, which was uh, the 64-bit migration and Microsoft's weird-ass approach to how they deprecate technologies. Because Microsoft keeps legacy technologies around indefinitely and their developer tools never encourage the adopt, uh, adopting new t hotness, it's easy to get comfortable working with outdated te tech. You might not even feel like you're working with outdated tech because it's treated as an equal with all of the other modern technologies. And you just feel like this is going to work forever. And then you don't have to adopt anything new. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is kind of what happened to this guy. And it actually sort of came out in the interview when we were talking about technological migrations. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Techn technological migrations are great. You can just update Visual Studio and everything keeps working. And I'm like, no, that is not <laughs> what we are talking about. Um, that is not a technological migration. I wow. mean, a, a kind of, but not really. Um, and like, that's the thing is I'm trying to be very careful because like, it's, it, it is kind of funny, but at the same time, like, I'm not mocking the guy. The guy's real smart. It's just like none of his, well, not none, but practically none of his knowledge is transferable. And there's so much of a learning curve to what we're doing considering he has like basically zero OO experience or little OO experience. It's kind of like, yikes, it's hard, but it's like, is he a senior developer? Well, technically he's a senior 10 years ago .NET developer. It's like, yeah, it's, it, it's hard to judge all this stuff, which is why like I have a hard time with job titles. If you have more like, more concrete and like task oriented job titles than like pay grade job titles. I feel like that is, it makes it a lot clearer what you're looking for. And it's easier to define if someone falls within those criteria than something vague like senior developer. And then you just sort of have to feel it out during the interview every time. You bring up a good example because uh, this reminds me of not hiring discussion, but just being taught how to 
do interviews uh, because, as you might expect, it is part of my job as a team lead to be in interviews and all that fun stuff. Um, and as uh, I would, I wouldn't be surprised, but as a lot of people, I was quite stressed about being the interviewer. I, I always, yeah, I'm. I'm not saying I'm perfect at it still today. Uh, two, three years after starting to do it, um, I'm always learning, but one of the first tips I got was always to make sure that you know what you need, like what you're looking for. And I would tend to err on the same side as you, where I would recognize the this person's experience and such. But even in a platform like iOS, like you cannot still be using Xcode like 5 today to build an app. Yeah. Right? That makes no sense. And I'm not bringing the Swift versus Objective-C. You can still be using Objective-C, but you'll still be forced to use the latest IDE and migrate parts of your code to do new things, right? Um, and that is one of the points that I've always um, realized is while there's good people that do great job day in and day out, one of the points that come up in that discussion is we're kind of looking for people that are always cursed to learn something new, right? Uh, the, the technological landscape is always changing. Uh, doesn't mean that today you should go from iOS to web, like all of that fun stuff. Like if we're looking for iOS dev, we should be looking for iOS devs. But this brought me that somebody that would stay stuck on like, let's say like Objective-C 1.0 and they know Objective-C 1.0 wow. so well and they would be a great asset for any Mac and iOS development shop right but then if they're not able Web to object shop yeah it could be yes but if they're not able to translate this knowledge to swift these days a lot of our code base is in swift these days so that is even if they're considered a senior or even like a, somebody with 20 20 30 years of experience they have 20 30 years of experience in a skill set that is less useful to us and i think it is fair to say hey i i value your experience but this is not what I'm looking for. And sometimes, and a lot of times too, uh, you have other discussion around different other topics where you realize maybe a, per- a person is great technically, but they wouldn't be a good team fit. And not because there's a bad person or an asshole and such, just that you feel with the people you have and their addition that it would maybe break something in a team dynamic or that they maybe would st- like have an issue to fit. Um, and that is heartbreaking, right? Because they could be amazing. Or I've seen the inverse too, where we do did add somebody that was um, quite a great team fit, but was not up to what we were looking for at this moment, technically speaking. And those are also hard to make a decision on top of it. It's like, and this guy came from another team and he's... It's great team fit. He's really like, a, he's lunching with you and he's talking about family and friends. And like, you could, like, you like to work with this person, like, on, I could say on the emotional level, right? It's like, it's, it's a fun person to be around or it's a nice person to be around. But then you start to look at their code and you're like, oh my fucking God, like, can this guy go away, right? <laughs> uh, and those, tend to bring you to making our decision. And I agree with you that all of that comes into this seniority level or not, depending on what the, this person's were at their career. But it, it forces you to make our decision. 
So the the one thing I try to be wary of with the whole team fit thing is it's very easy to channel your own like xenophobia slash casual racism slash just like fear of the other. If someone is too different, sometimes you are just going to categorize them into bad team fit, even though they're that might not necessarily be the case. It's just a proxy for your own insecurities right. about various things. So I try to be wary about that in general. Um but the rest of your points were actually a very good setup for where I was going, uh, which is sort of the three criteria I personally look for in a developer. Like, not necessarily what the company looks for, but what my personal biases are. And these come down to adaptability, evaluation, or sense of evaluation, and then existing skill set. So adaptability is how much friction is there between you and learning something new? How good are your fundamentals to quickly pick up previously unknown tech or concepts. How aware are you of what is broadly happening outside the silo of technologies you use in your day-to-day? Because that can be useful. Uh, if you have ad- adaptability, you're more likely to require a shorter initial training period and become effective much quicker. And you're more likely to be resilient and receptive to technological migrations. Uh, and this is especially re- relevant for us for this hiring cycle because this year we are trying to modernize our server and front-end stacks. And we are in the middle of the transition right now, and we need someone who is going to be effective on both ends of the migration process. Uh, this adaptability can get you hired for jobs you have literally zero hands-on experience in because it's happened to me. Uh, I was coming from my uh, iOS background, and I went to a company with, who wanted to hire me for ASP.NET web development, which I had never done. Uh, but because I had sort of shown off that I have this great adaptability and I have an ease of learning, I was like, don't care. I'm going to learn on the job and you don't have to worry about anything. And like within two weeks, I'll be doing as much work as the other guys. Like, don't worry about it. And it works out. Uh, sometimes adaptability can be signaled by non-tech accomplishments. Like I'm going to humble brag again here, but I fucking <laughs> learned Japanese for no reason as an adult. And that's on my resume and people are going to see it and they're going to be like, this guy's fucking freaky. He learns languages for fun. What's wrong with him? He must be able to learn other things for fun too. Uh, so look for that on people's resumes. And uh, sorry for the interview, but that is a good example of what I mean with my topic around team fit right like i would yeah. know by looking at and you you kind of show off and let's be honest a cv is for that is to for showing off don't lie yes. on it you can show off if showing yeah. off but it's the truth it's okay if you lie on it that's different and th- this is the thing is if you lie on your cv which i have seen it is very easy to tell because i've seen people shoot themselves in the foot so hard just by asking very basic questions about the tech stacks that they were doing. And it was just like, you don't even need the brain teaser uh, questions or like, how do you move a mountain or all that shit. You can just say like, so which templating language do you use for your thing? And they can be like, uh, and they fall apart. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, but you can go on with your point. Oh yeah. Um, what was, what, okay, I'm trying to figure out my point because I did like you. I cut you off. No, yeah. that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, more or less is like those nice gems in so yes my point about the team fit is i do feel it is important maybe you realize that it's a bit less because you're a small team but in in the end like 
you don't want to go to a workplace where you work with people and it's like it is not hmm. it's you not want people to be enthusiastic about the things they work on yes um but you need to be understand that some people will be nine will be there for the nine to five like any other job that's even if you're in True. tech uh, you need to be aware of that um and that you should have any biases you'll see more people passionate less passionate but you should have a, a, a appropriate level of that but that's not the point i was ma- trying to make is at the same time you don't want to be friends with your colleagues you, you can have a professional relationship but if it, if it is painful personally to deal with people and not because of maybe their but sometimes they talk about their personal life and they literally say the worst shit you believe in <laughs> like that yes. can make it hard and this is true i've seen that in some of us like and it's not to this my current job is i just see some people and i don't i don't want to work with them mainly because like what they say about like their their ideology of life is like what the f right so yeah. while you need to be open-minded and that's the point i want to say why you need to be open-minded with this you need to keep a balance of like okay no i know that i'm i have a bias of like i i want people that will fit correctly in my team but i need to be careful because that might be bring more people like me and gems like you learning like japanese when you were like 26 or 27 or 24 if i don't recall like but in your adult younger than that early to early 20s but in your adult adult my point is then people can connect that and see oh talk to you about that and see who you are a bit more as a person and see do i really want to work with this person because i think in an interview that's one of the main questions you want to answer do i want to work with this person technically speaking and personally speaking because i need to interact with you on a day-to-day basis whether i'm in office whether i'm remote i still need to interact with you in some humane and emotional ways we're still communicating we're still documenting uh and that needs to stay yeah and like the guy who's leaving uh from my job is like my main partner for a project we've been working on for two years and it's gonna it's like people talk about like buddy cops with their partners and whatever like we're the pair we're like the characters in the movie that are that have been this two-year project and breaking us up is actually going to kind of suck because now it's like there's that link between us that is not going to be there when he's gone and that's gonna suck um so yeah i totally get it uh i've been trying to come up with like a question that like signals adaptability and the first time I threw it out, like the person was completely confused by it uh, because they were not expecting that kind of question at all. And I'm going to ask you this question and I want you to tell me what you think about it as a sort of like, I don't know. This is really a weird question. Okay. So the question I ask is, if we chose to green light your pass- passion project using any programming language or tech stack of your choice, what would you build and what would you build it with? Hmm. Okay, that's a that's an interesting question, and it's funny because I do have a question a bit like that. Uh, oh. So if you want me to answer your question, of course I'll say iOS app, and I don't care about the backend. Just find me somebody to do that because I don't really I do care about the data, but I don't care about building that. Uh, but I, that's that's not maybe the answer you're looking for for web dev, but sure. Well, no, so. This is the thing. So I'm not looking for a suck up answer where no, you're no. saying like I would build 
web applications and ASP.NET MVC. Like that is not what I'm looking for. I want you to say something that is not that. Right. I want you to say, I want to build a fucking like tip calculator in Haskell or something fucking crazy. <laughs> like get your like reverse buzzwords out, out there. Like I want to build a compiler for pure script. Like literally like get your weird GitHub shit out of your system. I want to know about it because it's cool as fuck. Uh, like, I want to make sure that people have like a certain openness to weird technologies that relate to what they are interested in and what not necessarily what the company is interested in because someday that might actually come in handy. And it's come in handy for a few of our coworkers where we have like these weird side projects where we use other technology. And then when we have a problem, we can be like, oh, I know about a tool that can fix this. And we can pull out our side projects and say, this is a thing that I made and it uses this to solve this problem. We should probably be using this. Um, I do have two questions that I like that are a bit like that. And tell me if you feel that they're the same uh, vein. Uh, the first one, which I always like to end maybe some of uh, the interview with, is um, let's say we go uh, we go forward with you or candidate uh, with you as a candidate, and we hire you, and that as your as your first project at at work, we let you do whatever you want, but so. But the only constraint is the following: it is you need to learn something new, and what would be oh, and why. That's good. And I, and they're like, oh, it should be at work. No, I don't care if it's related about like in this example about my workplace, about light speed, about like POSs, about retail, about restaurants. I don't care. Like, what would you like to learn? And I give you like I don't know a month. Like that's your first project at at light speed. What will you do and why? So sometimes you get the typical answers, like you get the AI, like the, 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 some of the buzzwords, but sometimes you also get fun answers. Uh, and the other one I like that is a bit more iOS specific is uh, talking about new iOS features. So I'm saying, <laughs> talk to me about the new iOS feature. iOS, iOS has been out for six, 13 years, 12 years. I forgot. I can't. I mean, 14 is coming out yes. this year. So Yes. But uh so it seems that uh, doing minus one is hard tonight. Uh, yes. But yeah, so since 2008 with SDK. So talk to me about the dev feature. Or talk to me about the new SDK feature that uh, like really in, in, uh, like changed the way of developing iOS apps. And it's funny because sometimes you see like really uber recent, like, oh, Swift UI, it's so nice. And it's like, okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's fine. Explain why. But sometimes it's like, you know what? Like we always complain about total layout, but. Overall, like after five, six years after it got released, like still good, you know, it's not the, it's not perfect. It's not bad, but I really like what it did to my productivity. And then you get some of those small gems and then you figure it out. It's fun stuff. See, I would be the asshole who would be like, did you know that there's a function in core media that can calculate dimensions in a certain aspect ratio? That shit's crazy. That's okay. Like. Who the fuck cares? <laughs> I would be a bit of that, but that's okay. I, I am also looking for uh, funny answers. The same way one of my uh, previous manager was asking, like, what his professed question to end the interview was, and sometimes I still use it, uh, so thank you, Richard, uh, is if I were to give you a superpower today, what would it be and why? You need to choose one, not ten. Oh, I don't one. like that. I don't have the imagination for that. I, that's why I realized, though, is I do feel like Okay, I don't want to put stereotypes here, but I do feel sometimes like devs don't have like the the imagination to think about that. Uh but yeah. That that's also a fun one sometimes. Uh 
But it's uh, strange enough. I don't want to sound mean when I say that, but when you throw some curveball in interviews, that's always good how people react because you want to know also when they like they've been thrown curveball in their day to day life how they will react, right? So it's true, but at the same time, I'm kind of frustrated because sometimes they're just like they're so speechless that they don't have a good answer for my question, and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, right? <laughs> but whatever. Uh, uh, sometimes in those, sometimes in those, I try to give a personal like example. Um, especially in yours i'm sure you would have like a lot of your funny like i remember some of you see jet project in different languages that at least <laughs> it would... actually it actually came up this week because um i don't know if you saw this video i tweeted someone wrote a c compiler for powerpoint which is yes, terrible i saw that it's fucking terrible but i was like that's like when i wrote an ios library to write to the windows registry like nobody fucking cares about <laughs> writing to the registry with an iphone but i did it <laughs> yep yep and you know what and knowing you you would come with so much like deep weird examples that the person couldn't be like oh i'll choose that <laughs> yeah yep so my next criteria was sense of evaluation uh this one is much simpler it's how comfortable are you to look for best tools of the job best tools for the job outside your current skill set if the problem calls for it um so if you're facing a problem that's hard to resolve with the current set of tools that we use, how quickly can you find a tool that gets the job done? And ideally, give me a pitch for it with pros and cons. Uh, this has come in, again, useful many times at work. Uh, one time we had a very complicated problem to solve that we could not get to perform at reasonable speeds with SQL. And I pulled out Elasticsearch and I showed it to my boss and it took three milliseconds to do the query. And he was like, yes, I want it now. And now we use Elasticsearch everywhere. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, it is a skill that is incredibly valuable. And that's sort of like what the tie-in is with that question is like, you want people to have an awareness of technology outside of the bubble that they work in so that sometimes they can pull out these mystery tools that they've heard of or that they have used on side projects and save the day and sometimes that's great um and like you have no idea how the company will evolve over time like the company i work at right now started doing cd-rom media for companies around town which i don't even know like who was making cd-roms in the region back in 1998 or whatever uh but apparently someone was and like eventually that morphed into web stuff in the early 2000s and we're still here today so having a wide range of skills or the ability to quickly switch between a bunch of different skill sets and uh, evaluate technologies that you may not be or that may not be 100 in your comfort zone are very valuable um i'm not sure if i should bring up this tangent because that always comes up especially in the native iOS world but the maybe the openness or the uh, flexibility of some devs to uh, maybe a bit more liberal, let's put it this way, on the scale of native technologies to web technologies and maybe the more rigidness of some other people that either they chose one or the other and they really that's really what they like and that they want to stay with that. And if they're forced to uh, do something else, they are like, ah, bye-bye. And I would like to maybe know how you uh, see that conflict uh, in your maybe day-to-day -day life or uh, when you evaluate a candidate. 
can you put it like in a more concrete context because I'm i having know a hard time. like I, I, I know about how it would work in an ios company like oh this person wants to work in xamarin or whatever right or oh, no or the inverse uh and again uh for sure i would say some of the time those conversations about react native comes up at, at work that's expected yeah. these days but um the best way I can put it is, let's say if tomorrow work forces me to write React Native, I'll be looking for a job. And I've told that my, to my boss like quite clearly. Like I Interesting. I am not, and that's why I meant about that is like, there will going people that be like, oh yes, a new challenge. Let's go do it. There's going to be people like me. I'm like, you know what? Like I love to learn new things in iOS native development. Swift UI, Combine, this new uh, Facebook framework for the fun of it. Uh, oh, this, like uh, the, the Matt Thompson with Triple T from NSFster is doing something nice with a lot of his libraries. By the way, you should go look at his GitHub. It's lots of fun libraries these days. Uh, oh, I want to learn that. But they're all around this kind of rigid technology and not the technology itself, but this rigid like region of the uh, mobile development which is literally native ios development and you kind of create a specialty and while you could say that web development is also ios mobile development uh you might not be willing or like really it's not your cup of tea and you don't want to go through this and uh, the reason why i want to you to comment on this is mainly because first you kind of did this transition from iOS to web and I know that it's a bit more I wouldn't say simpler but it's more I think it's more assumed that whether front end or back end web devs they would do that more or at least assume more that there will be a bit more fluidity on the tech stack use on web technologies and that you let's say you do .NET today and tomorrow we decide to do Ruby on Rails I'm throwing stupid stripping uh, example but you see where i'm going with this it is assumed that no you should should be able to move right or you're in php and you should be moving to node.js or go or net or whatever and there's kind of a implied fluidity uh in some of the technology used and maybe i'm wrong like i could be totally wrong but i've seen that a bit yeah okay i, I can comment out of this well first of all I, I think it's funny that well not funny but I'm a little bit surprised that uh, if the company decided you're doing React Native, you would just jump ship right away instead of actually giving it a try. Because I, I would actually stay and give it a try if I was in your position. Just because, like, uh, and I've thought this about Catalyst too. Like, I secretly actually want to write a Catalyst app oh, just to have experience with it, even though I think it's complete shit. Okay. Like, I want to use it so that I know exactly how shit it is. Um, because you can think something is shit. And then if you actually have the experience to back up how shit it is, like chef's kiss, now you have even more ammunition to trash it in the future. Like, I love that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, I like it. I like it. It's so on character for me. Um, Oh, yes, it is. And like, there are certain thresholds that I would not cross. So at my old job, we were told, uh, we are switching all of our internal application development to Microsoft Dynamics, which is a huge shitty CRM from Microsoft. And unfortunately, ironically, I now have to integrate with APIs that deal with that shit and it never fucking works. <laughs> uh, but I, like I said, like, no, I'm, I'm just quitting. I cannot deal with this shit because it is too enterprisey for me. But for React Native, I think like 
I think the thing that saves React Native for me is that I think the base architecture is good. I just don't necessarily think the way they've implemented it is correct. I, I disagree on implementation details more so than the actual like theoretical benefits of it. Why? And that, that, that's a bit why I was trying to be a bit up in the cloud, a bit more generic. Yeah. Uh, yeah not but name, name drop specific um, tech. Vendors. Uh, or yeah. vendors even. Um, but again, I, I did have the discussion is I feel that there's enough new ways of thinking in a specific subset of attack. And I would say one of them that I still struggle to this day and that's okay. And I'm learning is still react reactive programming. Like I'm not really good at it. Uh, I need to write more of it. And that for me, uh, will have to do like for sure. I'm quite curious about it. At first I was a bit, let's be honest, afraid. Right. But the more mm -hmm. I, the more I try it, the more I review code with it, the more I, um, these days I'm more review code with it than write some code, but that's a different topic. <laughs> but again, again, a technology like that, and I do feel it's still in the same bubble that I feel I want to be specialized into, if you see what I mean, versus, oh, today in the, we do a project in this stack and tomorrow we do a project in another stack. I do feel I'm not that type of person. Like right. I know I would struggle and I would know I would be frustrated at myself. Uh, and I had an exact moment of this today about just some server configuration I need to look into. And I was like, I don't understand this shit. <laughs> Literally. I'm like, and I'm not, and I'm even frustrated. And somebody told me, go read this and then be like, you'll be done. I'm like, yeah, but I need help. I need time. And me not understanding. And it could be like just me being me also. But I do feel that like, I'm not somebody that is, I'm not uh, considered rigid, but I'm not somebody that learns uber fast where like tomorrow we go with this tech to the end of the day after we go to that other tech. I'm, uh, that to me, uh, like, that type of world will go crazy. But I do know that a lot of people, they do strive to them. And again, it goes back to the beginning of the episode where it is important that as an interviewer and as a business, you really define what you are looking for for people. Right. So in the web world, like you sort of see this on two fronts. You see it on the backend side, which is like, today we're doing ASP.NET MVC, and then next day we're doing Ruby on Rails, and the next day we're doing Node.js Express, and then like it, it chains with whatever the new hotness is, and like suddenly you're doing Elixir and all that shit. Uh, and then you have that on the front end side, which is like, uh, everybody started with MooTools or Prototype.js, and then they moved to jQuery, and jQuery stayed for a really fucking long time, and then <laughs> React kind of knocked the shit out of jQuery, and now the React is everywhere, and now Angular is starting to get a bit more of the market, and then you've got like Vue.js, and then you've got all of this stuff, and then Microsoft comes in, and they're like, we're going to build this thing into our ASP.NET MVC, and it's going to look really great to bosses of companies, but not to the actual employees, and there's that at the end. Uh like it, it happens on both fronts. And I think that's actually something that we are kind of not struggling with. But like I said, like we're trying to modernize our stack. And right now, if you're trying to like make the company look appealing to developers that are used to moving from the hotness to the hotness to the hotness, like we look way behind and we are behind. I'm not sure we're as behind as everyone thinks we are, but we are behind on the times and we are working to modernize it. And so the thing that is important is like, we are making decisions now 
for the next probably five or more years of development, probably, mm. that is going to be happening at the company. And if you're being hired as a senior developer, you're probably going to be at the table for this thing. But you need to recognize that like, this is the timeline we're working on and we are not moving from hotness to hotness to hotness. And like, you, you have to be conscious of that. And you also have to be conscious that like, you are going to be maintaining a lot of projects that are actively in production that are still relying on the old stack. So you have to like, not be pissed every single day that you still have to interact with jQuery uh, because there's a lot of it. Um, so I try to be clear about that. And I have a little bit, a little bit further on that is going to tie more into this. Um, but yeah, th that's kind of how I, I, I try to be transparent about like the more technical stack side of things. And honestly, these days it's mostly falling on my plate because my boss is like, we need to modernize, but you're kind of the only one who sort of knows what's happening. Uh, <laughs> except sometimes I get mailing lists from Microsoft and they tell me I should try this thing. And I'm like, don't do this thing. Uh, <laughs> so there's that. And then more on the like hybrid web mobile app thing, which is also kind of sometimes brought into the camp of web development, but not so much for our company. The thing about me is I'm a very honest person and I might have like a political agenda against stuff like Xamarin or against stuff like, uh, what is it called? Cordova or PhoneGap or all of those things. I can also lay out the arguments like these are the pros and cons. Here's my personal bias. I think you should not do this, but the pros and cons are there and I'm not the person who's making the decision. So make the decision, but I can tell you, I will not be happy with these options, but make the decision you want. Uh, so that's more or less how I would lay it out in those kinds of things is like, I, I recognize that there are business decisions that take place for business reasons and there are technical de decisions that happen for, uh, technical reasons, but sometimes they cross and there's nothing I can do about that. And that's kind of part of my jobs. I have to deal with it or not. And that's where or I you can just leave, which is fine, except I'm, I'm not really that kind of person. Like, if the technology really pissed me off and I had to work with it every day, like, probably Cordova Phone Gap, yeah, I would probably leave. Or I would probably just ask not to be assigned on this project. Yeah, let's be honest. Like, I, I say that, but, like, I, I've talked with people that I've interacted a lot there at uh, CocoaEds, and, like, they don't leave instantly. I do feel that they'll, uh, I would do be surprised and I would do the same thing. Is You tough it out. And then you prepare what's next and you take your time to prepare what's next, but you don't take three years to prepare what's next. You take maybe a month or two or three months or maybe six months and yeah, you shop and around. And then you're like, okay, no, yes, I, I'm moving. Like I used to do native. I want to continue. And that to me is like uber clear. And if one of my devs tomorrow comes and I need to, I need to be the one announcing, Hey, we're doing more like react native and such. And they're like, that's not for me. This like he, he even if it's a business decision, I understand it. And it's not where I see myself doing it. Like, I won't be happy day in and day out. Uh, I'll be the one be like, so we, we cannot help you these days for that. And yeah. I'll prepare that. And that, I think, is uh, important. So I know it's a bit of a tangent on some of your, top some of your topics, yeah. excuse me, but uh, I felt it was some I related and to. Like I said with, like, the React Native example, like, there is a threshold where I'm like, I am going to indulge this just for personal curiosity. And maybe it actually isn't doesn't suck as much as i think it does which like rarely does that actually happen because i <laughs> tend to be fairly knowledgeable about this shit um but like 
sometimes I make mistakes. I said the Nintendo DS was going to be a terrible console, and look where I am now. I have shelves full of fucking DS games. So, like, sometimes I fuck up. Uh, and we all do too, right? Yeah. So you, you need to like verify your biases sometimes to make sure that they are still valid. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about the DS another time, so I don't need to keep going on about that. Uh, <laughs> or React so, Native. Dum-dum. Yes. Uh, evergreen topics here on the show. Uh, so now we can move on to the existing skill set, which I sort of asked like four questions when it comes to existing skill set. Um, and I don't like ask them out loud. I ask them in my head. Uh, how much experience do you have with tools that we use every day? So these are going to be the specific tools that we use every day uh, because that is high priority if we're hiring you for a specific job. How much experience do you have with tools similar to what we use every day? If you're coming to apply to for an ASP.NET MVC job, let's talk in general, not necessarily senior developer, um, but you've mostly done Ruby on Rails development for it, but maybe you've done Ruby on Rails development for five to eight years. There is a lot of your knowledge that is transferable to ASP.NET MVC right there. It's kind of like switching uh, C style languages. Like it's probably going to be uh, quirks, syntax quirks, and like stuff like that that you're going to have to get used to more so than a complete mindset shift. So there are good things like that. Then there's like how much experience do you have with software design patterns that we use? So obviously here I'm talking about MVC, but if we were to adopt a FRP style view framework for our web applications, I would also consider uh, FRP development in there. Uh, and this is mostly to weed out people like the guy we talked about earlier who has been doing basically procedural development for 20 years. Uh, like you need to know object-oriented development. You need to know MVC. Uh, you need to know this kind of stuff. And like this mostly comes up because the guy we ended up hiring for the senior developer position is comes from a senior Windows development background. He has basically limited web development uh, experience, but he turned out to actually be the best candidate that we could actually get within the time frame we were looking for. And he kind of also ties into the fourth question, which is how quickly can someone who is highly adaptable catch up to you? Uh, this, of course, assumes that you can find someone who is highly adaptable in your candidates, which is not always the case, which is a problem. And how adaptable are you? Uh, so this guy, first of all, he had a super impressive like portfolio to show off for like his two years of his actual tech career. Um, and he's been doing amazing Windows development work. And we're like the amount of work that we would have to do to get you proficient in web development is tiny. Uh, so we are not worried about taking you on, even though you are technically like a beginning web developer, you have so much experience with the rest of what we do that we are confident taking you on. Uh, so I'm looking forward to eventually seeing him. Uh, the thing is he, at the moment we are recording this, he was supposed to start on next Tuesday and the problem is uh, because of coronavirus and all that stuff, it got pushed back. Um, but <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, and it's a it's a good point that you're making too. Is um, if I talk personally speaking, I, I do feel that sometimes the most the the best I want to say the best, but the web app I understand the most are the one that are like really MVC based because I do understand MVC a lot from iOS development. I'm like, oh, that's the view. That's the model. Oh, that's talking to the database. Oh, that's the controller here. Oh, that does the routing and all that fun stuff. Uh, and then it's like, oh, wow, I kind of do understand uh, web development. 
if I want to. That's uh, that's a, that's something a lighting, right? In some moments, like I'm talking with the backenders and like, oh yeah, we're having this issue in the control. I'm like, oh yeah, sounds like <laughs> some of my issue in my iOS app. So those are the criteria that I use uh, for evaluating candidates. Next up, I want to talk about a frustration of mine in previous programmer interviews I have been a part of, not like as an interviewer, but as an interviewee. And that is too little attention on developer workflow during interviews. Generally, I found that interviewers tend to be very confused when you ask broadly, how do you work instead of what do you work on? Um, But to me, the reasoning as to why I do it is pretty obvious. Projects are going to change over time, but workflows require have much more inertia to change. And if we're being perfectly honest, they are likely to be constant at the company uh, just because of how much inertia there is in changing those workflows. Now, sadly, sometimes the person who is interviewing you knows nothing about the technical side. Uh, sometimes it's just some HR person uh, who is trained to like look at a list of criteria and look at your CV and see how many words match up on the search and replace uh, window of their word processor. Uh, so it's understandable, but also kind of disappointing when they can't answer you about these things. Um, but some questions that I've asked previously at companies and gotten weird faces for is, does the company have a centralized bus- bug tracker or task list? Does this company use per project time tracking, which is actually a company we've gotten a lot uh, from our uh, candidates this year. I'm not sure what the deal is. I think there's people are just tired of per project time tracking at many companies. Oh, we don't have it. Um, this is one I think you'll enjoy. Do your projects have automated testing or continuous integration? Uh, how regularly do your projects deploy? Are they automated or manually deployed? Feature flags or branches? Again, another uh, topic from the show. <laughs> uh, how many projects am I expected to juggle at one given time? And what is your protocol around communication outside of work hours? Although that is not purely workflow related. That is more like workspace in general. Yeah, work-life balance. Uh, yeah. They, to be honest, they are all valid questions. And as an interviewer, you should have answers somewhat, answers somewhat ready for those or... I'm saying like you have a text to read, but you should know that candidate will ask you about this, right? Uh, and I think in this day and age of tech job, having the wrong answer for a candidate, and I'm saying your answer is wrong, but a candidate assumes that your answer is wrong for them will cause you a lot of pain because people would say, like, I don't want to work there because A, they don't do CD. And even if you think it's a buzzword, uh, there's values to this. and if you're not there, you'll attract a certain type of candidate and all of that fun stuff. Well, I try to be as transparent as possible in interviews with our internal workflow. Right, um, no, that's what I mean. I say you should be honest with what you yes. do and you don't, but you should also be prepared to say, okay, yes, we do CD. No, we don't use Jira. No, yes, uh, and like ex- be able to explain a bit why and be honest. Like we do sometimes, we do be honest. I'm like, you know what? We don't do really do UI work, but we do have an extensive unit test suite like yeah and that we're honest and we, we do explain not in long details but we kind of give the reasoning why and that that we do a lot but i feel that it is more telling if you get a blank stare at those questions <laughs> that somebody comes prepared and it might not have the best answer but if you if you see that the employer is prepared the people that are interviewing are prepared to answer those questions and have i would say 
a valid answer. Maybe it's not a perfect answer, but they have a valid answer. You see that they clearly explain why they're in this situation, maybe why they want to move out or why they don't want to move out because of Sorbetta's needs and such. This tells you so much about a workplace uh, than you can imagine. Yeah, earlier you were talking about team fit, but there's also from the developer side, there's workflow fit, which is like, I like to work in a specific way, or I believe that it is optimal to work in XYZ way. And you will seek out companies that have more workflow elements in common with what you ideally want than anything else. And the other thing is, again, like I'm sort of the workflow optimizer at work because I'm the only one who's crazy enough to care about all this shit. Uh, so, I I am running campaigns for modernization of our workflows internally all the time, and I try to get <laughs> what I can get done all the time. And if I am working on something that is not presently available in the company, I can be like, well, no, we don't have this right now, but I'm working on it. And also, like, seeing the feedback of people in these interviews when they ask those questions and they are turned off by something, I can be like, you see that? That is my justification for why I want to get this done. Uh, yeah. So it, that could it's be, a powerful argument. Yes, that could be good for uh, other discussion. Even if the candidate decides to not take uh, your offer or they don't decide to continue the, the hiring process, it could be like, hey, you remember the, the, the nonverbal reaction that the candidate had? Mm, that could be why. We will never really, really know, but that's a good indication. And I, I think it's also like a certain signal of how invested someone is in their work that they actually care about the workflow that they are going to be fit in versus someone who is just going to adapt. Well, adapt is the wrong word because earlier I spent half the episode talking about how adaptability is good. But uh, like you, you want to people to have people who are opinionated about their workflows and all of that stuff because it shows how passionate they are about their work and getting things done effectively. And sometimes companies have workflows that are terrible or like <laughs> the word comes from the higher ups at corporate and they say, no, we have new practices now and you can only deploy once every month, which is what happened at my old company. And we were like, we are used to deploying multiple times a day and people on our floor expect it. And now they're going to be angry at us on our desk. We can't work like this anymore. We all quit. Uh, that is the thing that can happen. I guess uh, uh, so that discussion comes back to our previous discussion about uh, my technical choices that I was discussing. Yes. I, I think I, I am more uh, antagonistic on the side of workflows than I am on the side of of tech choices. But that's a topic for another time. Yeah, for sure. One thing, though, is I am actually kind of surprised how little uh, interviewees ask these questions. And I don't know if, the, if it's because they tried asking these questions like me and they got weird faces and then they were like, well, I'm not going to bother asking it because nobody ever answers me on these things. Or if people just don't care that much. Like, honestly, the only one I've heard this year uh, in terms of the questions I had put out was uh, the per project time tracking thing because people mm. are really sick of that and having to log their their work hours on various projects and all of that stuff. And honestly, I find that kind of weird because I don't really care either way myself. Uh, we don't do it, um, but it's just, I didn't know it was that big a problem throughout the industry. No, that's, I've heard about that in typical agency places, but again, never, uh, I work in an agency just for an, in, for, uh, an internship. So 
I don't think they were logging my time too much, but I do recall even at that time that I did add some, yeah, I think I did add some log per quote unquote project, even if I was an intern. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. And I've heard from like colleagues here in the iOS community that it is, uh, it happens not a lot, but it happens. So, but again, working at a product company like I do, uh, we don't yeah. have that. So, and I, I don't think there's a value for this though. Uh, logging time, there's always a discussion about that for sure. So to me, like it's the sort of like the, the virtual side of, uh, because like sometimes you go to an interview and then the boss is like, okay, let me take you around the office and you go on a little tour of the office and then like you talk about the job, but you don't actually talk about the virtual workspace where you're going to be working, which is where all the workflow happens. And that is where most of your hours are going to be spent. So I think to me, it's a priority to ask about workflow. And that's why I've previously been frustrated when hasn't really led to any answers. Um, but yeah, it's something I think is very important. And that's why I try to be as transparent as possible in right. interviews on this topic. Yeah. As an interviewee, that's the type of red flag you should be looking for when you're shopping for jobs, more or less. Yes. And if you ever find yourself across from me in an interview, I will gladly talk about any of these topics because people can't get me to shut up about them. <laughs> so, please subscribe to our podcast. Uh, so that's it for my topic about hiring developers. Um, it was really strange. Like the, the first interview I had to do, uh, the boss was actually in the middle of the interview and he called me in with no warning. And he was like, Ooh. ask this guy questions. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah. So that was a disaster. Uh, but the subsequent interviews I actually sort of prepared for and I, I started honing out what I was going to do. And uh, yeah, they they went a lot better. And I think I have a better feeling for what we're looking for and what questions I should be asking than that first one where I completely got caught off guard. Yeah. Uh, on my side, I would say that even if I've done uh, more than an full interviews as an interviewer, uh, every time I need to interview somebody, I'm always quite stressed about it, to be honest. And I think it always lays down to uh, a bit to like the honesty that you were saying that we want to do, but also like kind of showing your best foot, right? Because I mm -hmm. do know that at the same time, this uh, market is quite cutthroat, right? So even if you try to put your best foot forward, if you by accident, just because of the stress of it, uh, make a small mistake, people will be like, oh, we made a mistake. Maybe it's because the, the workflows are shit at this place. So bye, right? <laughs> even for the small, like dumb thing, people will like, there's so much like competitiveness, uh, I guess, Maybe less than twelve. Yeah, no, send a, a lot less. <laughs> send a this here. Uh, I'm not trying to throw shade, but I can tell you, in Mon even in Montreal, like sometimes I hear like people like, oh, of course, a lot boils down to money and uh, like a compensation package, as an HR person would say. Um, but I do feel that the great talent that is on the market, they will ask a lot about your day to day life at work your processes the way you document the way the product is built the way the like the decision making around features uh and will make strong decision or even the tech used will make strong decision following those answer and less about i would say less about but yes less about the compensation package because you'll be surprised as for some of them it's like more or less equal and then you're like, no, I, I like the vibe more or they don't do unit tests and I really believe in unit tests. So I'll go at this place or 
uh, they use React Native and I won't really want to use React Native or they use Ruby on Rails and I really want to do Ruby on Rails so I go there and all that fun stuff. Yeah, damn companies that don't let you record podcasts about technology. (laughs) 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 That would be a major deal breaker for me, I tell you. Yes, yes. So you wouldn't work at at Apple, for example. No. See? But I also don't want to work in the Bay Area. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Uh, How about you take us out from this disaster? Yes. Uh, Before I go in the ultra, I would say if you have any uh, advices, funny stories about interviews you've uh, done or you've uh, been an interviewee in, uh, please send us a note, whether on the Twitter podcast, on all the fun stuff uh, we say in doing the ultra, I'm sure we'll be... uh, Really, we would like to hear your funny story or your horror stories. Do we want to share your pain uh, and share the pain with you? So with the, I guess, the limited amount of show notes we'll have this week, but for sure, if you want to go see all the trailer that Yannick was talking in part one about Final Fantasy VII Remake, you'll find all the links in the show note for this episode at limitlesspossibly.net slash 133, so 133. You can find our back at a lot of 132 episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the podcast on Twitter at limipo, limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Also, you can send, my goodness, you can send some, all of those fun, uh, interview, uh, fun stories and maybe horror stories to myself on Twitter at at Lukonush, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E and you can find Nick on Twitter at Sakarina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A and we'll see you in two weeks see you in two weeks